we are doing well. It's nice to be with you this afternoon. Yeah, it's nice to be with you guys too. I'm excited to film this episode, especially because you guys have your own podcast too. We do. We've been hosting and producing the Eyes on Success podcast for just over 10 years now. 10 years. Wow, that is amazing. Ten Time years. flies. Wow. Could you tell us a little more about your podcast? Sure. So we started Eyes on Success 10 years ago, as Pete just said, um, with the intention of basically bringing information to people with visual impairments, because Pete's actually knowledgeable on the topic, having been blind his entire life. Um, and so we cover basically a variety of topics. Some of it is quite technical. We'll talk about the latest improvements and features to access technology. Sometimes we talk with people about careers that they've been pursuing, some of which you might find surprising for someone with a visual impairment. We'll talk about uh, services that are available for the visually impaired, various people's pastimes. You know, if somebody likes to knit and you think, well, how can you do that if you can't see? Well, listen to that episode and you'll get some good hints. So it's basically, um, and we named the show Eyes on Success because it's very success-oriented, either the tools to enable you to do what you want to do or individuals' success stories where they've managed to do something they wanted to do despite maybe getting discouraged initially. Wow, that's I really love the whole idea of your podcast of um, displaying success in the lives of visually impaired people. It's very inspiring. Thank you. And it sounds like a similar mission to what your podcast is trying to accomplish. And as Nancy mentioned, I've been blind since birth. And despite the fact that your viewers see me with glasses, I don't have any functional vision. The glasses are just protection. But you also have a connection to blindness. Yeah, I do. So actually, one of my close family members, um, he has uh, retinitis pigmentosa. Um, and ever since I was little, um, that family member means a lot to me. And I would always um, help them out. And he really didn't want to, um, like, expose his visual impairment to um, the public because uh, it was kind of like a confidence thing for him. So we uh, we created this squeezing hand system where I would help him navigate um, outside through the squeezing of hands. It's kind of like Morse code, but not actually Morse code. It's like our own little system that we created. Like one squeeze means a stair, you need to step down. Two squeezes means maybe you have to step up, you know? So it was our like silent communication method to help him navigate safely. Um, so that's where my love for this started. Yeah, we have our own secret code. I don't even think either one of us knows what the code is, but somehow when we're approaching a step down, I do something and he knows what's to it, what to expect. And, um, and of course, our friends don't even notice and our families don't even notice and we'll be walking along and all of a sudden someone will yell, Nancy, you didn't tell him about the curb. I'm like, well, actually I did. It's just, you didn't hear me. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all just hand gestures. Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of instinctual too. Like sometimes I'll definitely forget to do like the one squeeze, but I'll kind of like pull him a little bit towards this way or that way. It's funny how subtle it can be. So Nancy and I are now married for over 37 years. Well, almost 37 years. And uh, when over. we... 
<laughs> July was um, six months oh, ago. Oh, July was. Yeah, I, I kind of missed time during the pandemic. But uh, anyway, we had been married for about 20 years. And I was out in the garden with her father, and she was inside when we were visiting. And he says to me, you know, it's really nice to see how you guys get along with each other. You interact very well. You know, you're very nice to each other and pleasant. Sounds like you have a nice relationship. He says, but I just don't understand. You know, I would think she would give you more help when you're navigating around, going upstairs and around places. And after 20 years, he had never noticed all these subtle signals. Yeah, it's interesting because we think it's, or at least I think it's so obvious, like the signals that I'm giving to him, like someone must be watching, right? Like it's in, in your head, you kind of think that it's obvious, but to the outside public, I don't, I think everyone's kind of so focused like on other things or themselves that they don't really notice um, this, like the subtle things that you do. I agree. The, the other funny interaction I had with my dad, and it may have even been the same visit, was I took him somewhere in our car, and Pete keeps his white cane next to the passenger seat, because that's where he sits. And my dad got into the passenger seat. He said, why is there a white cane in the car? I'm like, well, because Pete's blind. He had never seen Pete with a cane, because we're always together. We're visiting my family. Mm -hmm. Oh, that actually, that, that's interesting. And that actually brings me to um, another like question I had for you. Um, what do you prefer using more? Do you prefer like using a white cane or someone helping you uh, walk around or any other form of like a navigational aid? So I guess it kind of depends. When I'm with Nancy, I really have no need for my cane. You know, our communications are so good and everything works smoothly. There are some friends that I trust to guide me around, not many, but, um, you know, with other people, I'll take the cane as a backup. And with some people, I prefer to use my cane alone. It's, it's interesting, you know, you talk about someone very close to you not wanting to be obvious about their vision impairment. And there was an incident several years ago when our daughter was running the Boston Marathon and we went up there to see her run. And... We were trotting around town, and when I'm in big cities, even when I'm with Nancy, I like to use my cane just to make other people aware that I'm blind so they'll stay out of our way and not crash into us. And our daughter, who, when she was growing up, rarely saw me use a cane, just flipped out. She says, Dad, what are you doing with that cane? I said, well, you know, you have a blind dad. She says, put it away. You don't need that cane. You don't need that. Put it away. She felt embarrassed, and wow. it was kind of a real tug of war the whole weekend with her. I don't think it was so much embarrassed, but she thought you looked vulnerable, that that people would take advantage of you because it was obvious you were blind. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of, I understand, I think, where she's coming from because um, I, I wouldn't say, like, I'm embarrassed or anything, but I do, like, I'm overprotective of this person. Like, I wouldn't want anyone to to take advantage of them because of their visual impairment. Um, but that's why I think that person also like doesn't like like to tell other people about it because it would interfere with like his work and um, with other places. So um, and it might interfere with his social life. I think that's what he's like concerned about. So I think that's why some people don't like to tell um, like to display their visual impairment publicly, but they kind of tell the people, you know, that like they're very close to so that they can help them out. Yeah, I've, I actually, as I said, I rarely used a cane when I was with the family and people I knew in Rochester. And it was just, you know, I never really thought about it. When I moved to Golden, though, three years ago, I figured I'd kind of reboot. 
And every place I go now, I take a cane and I actually find it very helpful. You know, people tend to be more helpful. There are sometimes, if I didn't have a cane, I was in the supermarket with Nancy hanging onto a cart and she went to gather something. Someone had asked me to move and, you know, I wouldn't know where to go. And it's not clear that I was blind and people think you're not listening or being disagreeable. So I found the cane to actually make things a little bit easier in some circumstances. You know, when we go to the airport to get on the airlines, they'll always let us pre-board. People stand out of our way. When I walk through crowds, it's almost like the waters part from Moses in that movie, The Ten (laughs) Commandments. People just spread out and it in many cases, makes things easier. So I've used it, you know, as much to help me as it is a flag to other people. And uh, it sometimes brings out the nice aspects of people. Yeah, I mean, I, I do agree uh, about how a white cane kind of like presents a flag for other people because, um, you know, the person who uh, who's a close family member, uh, when he like kind of goes around and he's like meeting with someone new and they like go in for like the shaking hand and he doesn't see that, you know, they're, sh- they're extending their hand to shake his hand. And so when he doesn't see that, they kind of like think that he's like ignoring, you know, them. Then I think people automatically make assumptions that uh, they're ignoring them or uh, I don't know, some assumptions like that. So I think having a white cane is a good indicator. Yeah, well, well, there are certainly pros and cons, right? I mean, people don't like to be labeled as being special. And, uh, you know, you can certainly see some people like using a cane, some don't. It's just like some people like using a guide dog and some don't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, would you say that one over the other is like provides like more accuracy or like makes you feel more safe, if that makes sense? Well, so when I moved to Rochester to my career at Xerox, I was I had a little bit more vision. So I could sort of navigate by seeing the contrast between sidewalks and grass. And I did use a cane all the time. But, you know, at that time I was single. I didn't really want a dog, something extra to walk and this and that. And these days, you know, I'm mostly with Nancy and I'm comfortable with my environment. But if I was single these days, I might consider a dog just in terms of being a little bit more precise, as you say, with your mobility and and helping out a little bit more. And we've talked with a lot of people who are guide dog users, mostly through the show. And every single one of them talks about the special bond with the dog and how they trust the dog with their life because, I mean, that's the whole purpose of the guide dog, right? And, and I'm sure, you know, for people who use guide dogs, it's a wonderful thing. But like Pete said, he just n- never was in a situation where he wanted one badly enough to, you know, have all the overhead of taking care of it. Right, that that totally makes sense. Um, I I don't know if uh, this is just like a misconception I have, but I always kind of thought like a white cane isn't like a hundred percent like full proof of a like solution because like um, I how would you alert yourself of like overhead obstacles with like a white cane? Oh, that's, that's, oh that's head, what the foreheads. For. Yeah, your head would hit it. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> We we interviewed a guy who hiked the Appalachian Trail. He did the first 500 miles himself. The whole thing's over 2,000 miles long, and he ran into a hiking buddy partway along. But the first 500 miles he did himself, and he's tall. And, you know, he couldn't really see where his feet were because they were too far away, but he was trying his hardest, you know, to get some input. 
And he kept hitting his head and he actually had to start the through hike a couple of times because he would hurt himself too badly by walking into low hanging branches, uh, you know, but ultimately he completed it and, you know, was really, was a big accomplishment for anybody sighted or blind. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. Well, now I see why the glasses are such a big help, you know, with the tree branches. Um, if that like hits you in the face, the glasses can protect your eyes. Absolutely. And we do a lot of hiking through woods and in some rustic areas. So that is that is good protection for me. I think your worst interaction was a coffee pot at work. That is true. The coffee pot actually scratched my cornea in the days I wasn't wearing glasses. That wasn't fun. Oh, that's so interesting. I would never expect a coffee pot to be able to do so much damage. I bent over and, you know, some sharp corner of it must have just been too close to my eye. Mm. (laughs) That's what happened. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Wow. Well, I'll definitely think about the glasses. That's a really good idea. Um, You know, even if you don't have prescription. So um, I was wondering if you guys could tell me a little bit more about your passions and how you pursue them. Well, you know, one of my big passions is I grew up as a kid doing lots of mathematical games and puzzles. And I've always enjoyed science and reading science books, doing these puzzles and games. And I eventually became a physicist. And I tell people, you know, I did those mathematical games and puzzles as a kid. Then someone paid me to do it. And it was a lot of fun. So it almost wasn't like working. I had a great career. And now that I'm retired, I still do a fair amount of geeky things. I read, you know, a fair number of science books. I try to do some programming now and then, especially to make some programs in Windows more accessible, working in open source projects with other blind people around the world to make these programs accessible. And to me, that's a lot of fun. I do a lot of beta testing for both assistive products and non-assistive products to make them more accessible. And I find that very rewarding and fun. I'm a geek at heart. No, I totally, don't worry. I totally relate. I'm all about STEM and science and uh, math. It's, it's, I love it. Um, so I, I wanted to ask, like, uh, throughout your journey of, uh, you know, becoming a physicist um, and working, were there any obstacles that you ran into and how were you able to uh, overcome them? You know, I've had a very fortunate life. So although I was born with congenital glaucoma in in the early 50s, I did have about 2200 or 2400 vision going through most of school until I was, um, until I graduated from high school. I did go to a school for the blind until I was in fifth grade because I couldn't see the blackboard even from the front row. So I did learn braille and, you know, hung around blind people. But after that, I went to a normal public school and I hardly ever used Braille. But just before I started graduate school, the pressure in my eyes was out of control for several years. And they did one last surgery and I went totally blind. And so that was probably the biggest obstacle of my life then. I had a fellowship to start graduate school in the fall in an engineering physics program. And I decided, well, you know, what are you going to do? I had to take that summer and I said, I'm going to relearn my Braille skills. That's where I learned to use a cane. And I dedicated myself to acquiring the tools that would enable me to be successful at graduate school when I started in September. 
I ordered all my books on audio tape from, from what was then recording for the blind and is now Learning Ally. And then I started graduate school in September and eventually got a PhD in engineering physics. And you know, the part of that story that you never talk about, you talk about regaining your braille skills, but you had to learn to learn in a manner that was totally different from how you had gone all the way through um, grade school, high school, college. You had always read visually, and then you had to learn to learn all of this stuff with braille, with audio, you know, how were you going to write the equations on your homework and really keep even more stuff in your head than you had before. I never thought of it that way, but I guess you're right. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, I'm taking AP physics right now. And I feel like for, for me, a big part of understanding a lot of physics concepts is like a visual aspect of it. Or maybe it's because I'm like a visual learner, but I feel like I need to see like diagrams of things moving. And so I think it's very like commendable how you were able to do that. And how were you able to, um, uh, you know, kind of combat like the visual aspect of physics? Well, you know, so there's sort of some pros and cons to being blind and, and sighted. And one of the pros was, so I used the example that when I started graduate school, as Nancy said, I was used to taking notes in all of my classes and then going over the notes when I got home. And I tried to do that in graduate school and I just wasn't able to take notes. Mm -hmm. And what I found was I asked some friends to take notes for me and their notes were worthless. So what I eventually <laughs> learned was, you know, they spent so much time trying to take the notes and listen to the professor that by the time they got home, they'd look at the notes and say, what is this garbage? So the skill I learned out of that was I would pay attention to what the professor was saying in class and what he was going through. And they all wore he's in physics back then. They mostly still are. <laughs> yes. And then I would go home and say, okay, what were the points he was trying to emphasize? And then I would listen to the book on my audio recordings and focus on those parts of what he thought was important. And so I think I got a better understanding of some of the lectures that way. Similarly, in my career, I did a lot of computer coding. Well, you know, when you're writing lots of computer code, no matter how well you can see, you can't see the whole code at once. Right. But being blind, you learn to keep a lot in your head. When I was deriving equations, there would be many steps left not put down on paper between step one and step two, which a sighted person would have the crutch of having to put all that down. But keeping all that in my head, you know, I knew the computer programs, the whole structure, I had it in my head. And I knew how the equations were going to lead from one to the next in my head. And I had to acquire those skills. And I think they were actually kind of helpful. Yeah, I imagine that, like, I feel like maybe your brain power, like memory wise, it might be stronger than like sighted individuals, because like the fact that you had to remember all of the key points that like your professor talked about in his lecture, and then go home, um, and then remember all of that stuff while you're listening to the audio recording. I imagine like, I, I cannot imagine doing that, 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 that requires a lot of like brain power and focus and memory. So that's amazing how you're able to do that. Well, and I, to me, it's just an alternate way of learning, right? Some people learn things by writing things down. 
and right. having the visual reinforcement for them is what helps them <clears throat> what helps them keep that information internal and so i think it's just a question of what people are comfortable with right. and what works best for them i mean i find i know how to do stuff on the computer but i find that because i can always look and see where the next thing to click on is i don't bother to remember where it is or exactly what it's called you know but i'm sure any of us who usually relies on our vision to figure out what the next step is. If we had to memorize it, we would. My other um, feeling about, you know, we talked about using canes versus dogs versus not using a cane and different ways of learning or going through mathematics and science. My other feeling is that there are often many tools to accomplish a task. And you just have to pick the ones that work best for you for the tasks that you need to accomplish. There's no right or wrong answer. And so I try to keep myself familiar with a variety of tools. I'm not an expert in all of them, but I tend to use the ones that are more useful to me and become better of an expert with those particular tools. And so I think people just learn, I think people need to learn to be flexible and trying different things, <clears throat> especially these days as technology advances and there are new tools all the time to help people with vision problems. Mm -hmm. If you can keep abreast of those, you have more options and more possible solutions to what you want to do. Right, I mean, I think having like the tool, like kind of like a toolbox, as you mentioned, um, is very important, especially because like the transition from like being able to go out um, to like kind of staying more at home because of COVID, um, that has like all of a sudden everyone is more, you know, on the computers or like on technology more. So like the fact that like you're able to use or transition your tools um, and use your tools now towards like a new way of communication, like through technology is probably, uh, it's, it's very like useful and important. Definitely. And, and that's not going to go away. Right, exactly. And I'm sure uh, because like you're already like um, into technology a lot, as you said, like you like to code things. Um, how is like the transition on on you, like with COVID and everything? Um, I haven't noticed a whole lot of difference besides not being able to be in large groups of people having fun as we used to. I mean, yeah. fortunately, we're out in Colorado here. We like to hike and walk and so we can often get outside and go on hikes with friends you know we try to minimize the number of people we do that with but right. it's a very inviting environment to be outside in right i mean i i don't think the impact on pete has been any different than on me you know and the difference oh, okay. between us is he's blind and i'm sighted but you know geez it'd be really nice if we could hug our kids when we see them mm -hmm. um It'd be really nice if we could take a trip, you know, but it's not like it's made a huge difference to our day-to-day -day life. You know, we don't socialize the same as we used to. We don't vacation the same as we used to, but I don't think Pete's blindness has had any impact, particularly on, on how we're affected. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought maybe so because uh, I feel like for me, the transition feels big because of like just going to school in person and then school is completely online. So I imagine if any if there's any like visually impaired high schoolers like doing school online is like 
probably like a bigger change for them rather than being able to be physically present like in a classroom. Well, it's probably a bigger difference between you and us because in other years you've been surrounded by how many thousands of kids are in your school every day. Right. And, you know, our activities are all, we're retired, they're all optional. We've always created this show from our house, in spite of the fact that this is the third house we've been in since we've been creating the show. We've always done it from home. And, you know, some of our other volunteer activities have involved being out in public, and that's not happening. But um, it's, I think it's a much smaller impact on our daily life than on yours. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely different for everyone, like what they're used to. Um, that's interesting to see. But I think it's interesting to see how adaptable people are and how they accommodate to doing things in a new way when they're forced to. So during COVID, you know, a lot of people are doing Zoom meetings these days, or maybe right. they're reading more, learning to knit or something, or in enhancing their education somehow. So I think it's interesting. People are adaptable. And, you know, I take that attitude towards people with vision problems. If you're adaptable, you just learn to do things in a different way. I've never considered blindness really a big defining thing in my life. It's just that, you know, so I happen not to be able to see. Some people can't run fast. Some can't shoot hoops. Uh, some are afraid of the dark. And, you know, I just happen to be blind. So Maybe I don't do things exactly the way you would do them. I might do them in a different way, but that's okay. Right. That that was a really good analogy. I haven't thought of it like that. Um, that everyone kind of has like their own thing. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um. And I I saw uh in a little like description that you know you guys gave me that uh, you kind of both of you met through a dance group. We did. So <laughs> when we were each graduate students, we each started doing American Contra dancing. It's um, sort of like square dancing, but in lines. The tradition developed in New England. It evolved in many ways from English country dancing. And we had a lot of fun with that. So when we each moved to Rochester, New York to get our respective jobs in corporate research at Xerox, we each couple of years apart, found the local contra dance group. And that's where we met. And, you know, Pete's actually a really good dancer. And, you know, you talked about your family members sometimes getting into awkward situations if people don't know that he's blind and he tries to shake hands. Well, in contra dancing, you're always reaching out to take the hand of somebody new. And as long as the other person knew what they were doing, if Pete was off by two or three inches, not a problem. Well, there was also a blind woman in the group who was also a really good dancer and who could also, you know, get within two or three inches of where she needed to be. But every once in a while, the two of them would come up to each other. And, you know, they were each doing the right thing, but they might not have connected perfectly. That's interesting. That's also goes to like the um, adaptability thing that, you know, that we were talking about. Um, and it's kind of like through dance almost, it's like adapting to uh, being able to like pick up quicker, I think for everyone. What was nice about the contra dancing was it was full of patterns. You wouldn't believe the number of scientists that were in the group because they enjoyed <laughs> the patterns and the kind of intricacies. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. No, actually, art and uh, like, you know, science has a very like 
interesting connection like um you know how it's stem like science technology engineering and math a lot of people are like turning stem into steam and you know adding the a for art um it's interesting to see the connection between the two a lot of people who are into science are also into art I think that's true, and I think they're very closely related. They they both involve some kind of creativity in kind of different aspects of the world. Yeah, I actually, I also did uh, a paper last year on music therapy and how just like listening to music uh, like decreases stress levels by so much. Um, and it's interesting to see the science behind that. Well, I really enjoy music. I actually studied piano since I was in second grade. And every place I've lived, I've always tried to take some kind of music lessons or other, either in music theory or composition, piano lessons, guitar lessons, flute lessons. And I, I really enjoy music. When I was living in Rochester, I had a jazz trio with some of my retired buddies. And we used to play at a lot of the f senior facilities around town. Mm -hmm. We used to play jazz standards from the 30s and 40s, and it was a lot of fun. Right, I can imagine. Yeah, I definitely think that like everyone should try art once in a while. In fact, um, you know, the student organization that I founded called I Matter, um, we're actually hosting free art classes nationwide for individuals with visual impairments just to like put out more opportunities out there. Tell us how these art classes run for people with vision loss. Um, they, they're planning on starting in January, and it's going to be over Zoom. Uh, so it's interesting to how we're going to teach art, you know, over Zoom, especially arts like dance and stuff. But there's, I think, around nine disciplines that we're offering um, from singing to dancing to, you know, filmmaking, visual arts. Uh, and we have a bunch of instructors, uh, one for each discipline. And they're just going to kind of teach over Zoom. And it's an interesting process creating the curriculums uh, to, you know, adapt to Zoom environment. So you and your um, colleagues on this project, you're all high school students. Are you targeting a high school aged audience or are you um, gearing this to all ages? Uh, we're gearing it to all ages. Um, the individuals who are teaching these classes, we actually all go to Orange County School of the Arts. So our entire half of our day, every single school day is dedicated to a certain art. So everyone um, kind of has a lot of experience with um, all of the different art techniques required for their dis discipline. So we're kind of offering it to all ages. What kind of special accommodations or teaching techniques do you think you're going to need to engage people with vision problems. So actually, uh, we, we've been having a lot of meetings with the teachers to uh, look over like the techniques they're going to be using. So it, it really depends on the the type of art that each person is doing. So like, for example, for, for singing, right? Um, conventionally, people would like sight read music, um, like off of they'll look at the notes and kind of try to decipher the tune of the, of the song. But because that might be a little harder, depending on like the degrees of vision loss uh, of the participants in, in the art classes, uh, we're kind of relying more on pitch matching. So like the teacher would sing certain pitches and they try their best to like um, match to those certain pitches. So for some, for some art disciplines like singing, it's easier to um, accommodate, but it's definitely kind of harder for like 
film, for example, that's going to be a little harder to teach, but we're doing um, a good job with like making sure that people have like screen readers and um, they're going to teach like different techniques like that. And I know you're all students at uh, the School for the Arts, but I just want to compliment you. You have a very attractive yet informative website. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. That means and and it's easy to navigate. And it's accessible. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. We worked really hard on it to ensure that like everything was easy to read. So that it means a lot that you guys, um, it was easy to navigate. Because it's, it's interesting because when I go to school and I learn classical uh, music, everything is so like centered on sight reading. Um, it's such a big skill. Like our finals were based on, you know, sight reading skills. So it's going to be interesting to like see the transition um, into like more like audio um, type of techniques where we have to pitch match and stuff like that. So it's a, definitely a learning experience for everyone. That's one of the reasons I got into jazz. When I was really young, as I said, I had a little bit of vision. And of course, everybody wants to teach you classical music, but I couldn't read the music and play it at the same time because I had to look so closely at the music. So I had to memorize all my music. And of course, that was a real chore. By the time I memorized it, I was sick of it. And that was when it was time to start making real music out of it. But eventually, someone turned me on to jazz. And with the music theory background and the lessons I had in various instruments, it was a lot easier to do. Then all I had to know was the chords and the melody that I could, you know, whistle in my head and I could put together my own arrangements and improvise. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that you had to like memorize all your music. I feel like that's actually kind of a, you know, a blessing in disguise because now like developing, uh, like being able to listen to something and then like memorizing it and playing it, I think it kind of develops the skills to the point where you can listen to a song and then just start playing it. Like I met someone um, who had vision loss and uh, they played the piano and I asked them, oh, how do you play the piano? Because sight reading is such a big part of it. And they were telling me that, uh, they're so used to memorizing music that now they can listen to any song and they can just start playing the notes exactly um, how they hear it. So I think that's amazing. Yeah, we all come with different kinds of skills and different strengths and weaknesses, and you got to use them accordingly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, after hearing that story, it's almost like sight reading is kind of like a crutch now, you know, to you know rely on sight reading to, to understand like the melody of a song. Sort of like taking notes in a graduate school class was a crutch, even though the notes turned out to be useless. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You're too busy writing notes to even understand what the professor is saying. Um, you know, you talk about the pros and the cons of various ways of doing things. As part of my career at Xerox, I was the manager of a group that was responsible for the image processing algorithms and developing these algorithms that went into Xerox's inkjet printers. And here I was, I was totally blind in charge of this group. And they were also responsible for the print quality specifications. And people would wonder, you got a blind guy in char charge of all these image processing things? And I tell people it almost worked to our group's advantage because it made everybody verbalize what they saw in pictures. And everybody sees something a little bit different in an image. So yeah. in terms of verbalizing it and really thinking about what they saw, it really was a strength of the group in terms of communicating with each other and what their feelings were about different aspects of print quality and image quality. 
Right. That's actually really interesting. And I imagine when you use like verbal tech, like ways to describe things I feel like you almost catch on the small details that maybe you might have missed earlier so that's probably an advantage I think it was yeah well I thank you for contacting us it was just a pleasure to talk with you and uh, we really admire what you're doing that's really kind of cool yeah good luck thank you thank you I really appreciate it if you enjoyed this episode please be sure to subscribe so you are notified when a new episode is posted Rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you are leaving with some great things that will help you see beyond.